All right, we're good. Okay. Well, welcome everyone. Uh, welcome to Subject to Interpretation, our podcast from the Lamore Interpreter Training. We are super honored. Every time we seem to outdo ourselves with our guests uh, today, uh, we are honored and have the pleasure to have with us my very good friend, Robert Joe Lee, who I consider uh, one of the pillars of court uh, interpretation in the country and has been around for a long time. I know that some people called him the grandfather of this project. I don't because he's very young. But uh, I will let uh, Robert Joe tell us a little bit about uh, yourself. Tell us, Robert Joe. Welcome, first of all. Good morning. Good morning. Good to be here. So, uh, Robert Joe, tell us a little bit about how did you get involved with this crazy business of interpretation in the courts or interpretation in general? Okay. Well, um, when I was a sophomore in high school, my parents made me take Spanish. I didn't want to do it, but it's the best thing they ever did for me. And uh, that was way back in 1964. So, soon after that, they took my family on mission trips to Central America. And so my disdain for having to learn a language turned into a love affair that has lasted the rest of my life. And um, by the time I was in graduate school, I was, in fact, the first, my first job out of um, college was being a, working as a bilingual secretary, which I did for about a year and a half. And uh, that involved not so much translating itself, but coordinating a variety of activities for a evangelical radio ministry in Mexico. Uh, but that gave me an introduction to languages and to cultures and to interpretation and translation. I didn't ever interpret. But uh, then I went to seminary in New Jersey. And while there, I worked as a prison chaplain with uh, Spanish-speaking inmates. Uh, helping lead services in state prisons in New Jersey, which I did for three years. Wow. And while I go to know the inmates better and better, and actually accompanied a few of them on furlough visits to their homes or to their families, uh, after all those years of, of working with them, uh, it became clear to me that the, one of the main concerns that they articulated time and time again was, when they went to court, they didn't understand what was going on. Uh, either there was no interpreter or they had to bring their own interpreter, which was a relative, or there might have been an employee of the court who was interpreting, loosely defined. <laughs> and as a seminary student in 1974 or so, uh, I went to the administrative office of the courts and met with a representative of the judiciary and told them that they had an issue that they may not be aware of, and uh, which was needing to improve the quality of, of court interpreting in the courts. And they sort of patted me on the back and said, oh, nice little seminary boy, you're a good liberal person. We got it taken care of, don't worry about it. Well, that was about 1974, and then I was so, so, um, engaged with what was happening with Hispanic inmates that I decided to go on and do a master's degree in criminal justice. And um, after I finished that, I knew I wanted to work in some aspect of criminal justice rights for Latinos. And I landed a job as a research associate with the judiciary. And a couple of years after that, 
an opportunity fell in my lap, which was pretty remarkable. The uh, administrative director of the courts and the chief justice of the Supreme Court of New Jersey had received a letter from a person alleging widespread deficiencies in the delivery of interpreting services in the state's courts. That letter was from a PhD in Spanish who was also a lawyer who was head of the legal services uh, program at Montclair State College and had been involved in some training of bilingual paralegals. So they asked me what I should, what I would recommend. I said, oh, there should be a Supreme Court task force to look at this. And his next words were, well, how about you be the staff person for that task force? So in a period of less than 10 years, I went from being an outsider, uh, trying to advocate to the judiciary that they needed to make some changes, to being an insider, being asked to to manage a program designed to do a major research project to find out what the needs and issues were and submit recommendations to the New Jersey Supreme Court. And so, as I say, the rest is history. So so that's, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but I, I think that this is very crucial. So you basically started a program that uh, officially had to do with court interpretation, uh, as it were, as opposed to just... Uh, because there was there was services for court interpretation. There was just not an organized program. Did I understand you correctly? Well, there was no program per se. The administrative office of the courts had no programs or policies whatsoever. Right. At that time, the New Jersey judiciary was decentralized, and the, the what we call the state level courts were all county funded and county operations. So it was twenty one counties doing things however they wanted to do, with some supervision and coordination from Trenton. But there was nothing in that area with respect to interpreting. So then, uh, yeah, once you started this program, didn't you then have a lot to do with uh, the creation or uh, uh, laying the foundation for what became the Consortium for State Court Interpreters uh, uh, certification? Yes. Yeah, what, what actually happened in terms of the, the history is that our unit was founded in December of 1986. And it consisted of myself, a sign language interpreter, and a bilingual support person. Mm -hmm. And the first task I was trying to do is get policy in place because I, I found that if you don't have any poli a policy about anything with respect to court interpreting, you have no leg to stand on when you go to talk to judges who manage the county courts. And so we wanted to get a code of conduct in place. We also wanted to establish testing, which was there's no testing at, at the time other than through the Department of Civil Service, which had a rinky-dick bilingual test. Uh, and so it took a couple of years because there was legislation that had been introduced to create a court interpreter act, but it never passed. And I kept going to the administrative director of the court saying, well, we've got to do something. We've got to have quality control. Right. And so finally in October of 87, uh, a, a directive was issued by the administrative director requiring uh, people to uh, who want to become staff interpreters to be approved by the AOC. So that gave birth to our testing program, and there were very few other jurisdictions that had any sort of testing at the time. And we basically tried to model our, our feeble efforts after the federal exam to some degree. Uh, but we finally, and uh, when that directive was issued, I'm sorry, 1987, I guess it was, with 86, we were 
we were tinkering with some testing modules, uh, but obviously learning the hard way. Uh huh. And what, did you guys have access to the federal exam? Well, I communicated with Jack Leith, who was the manager of the program at that time, and he recommended that we just use the federal uh, certification test, the FCICE, as our state test. But for a number of reasons, we decided that just wasn't feasible. He was willing to work with us, and uh, but for lots of reasons, that, that didn't work out. So we developed our own test, uh, and we actually involved... Uh, Roseanne Duenas Gonzalez and three other people who had been involved in the design of the federal test to do a validation study of our model. And that led to a few minor changes in the test. And in 1987, that's when that directive was, I apologize, it wasn't 86, it was 87. Mm -hmm. We uh, started testing people who, uh, who were applying to be court interpreters. And after that point, from that point on, we had a standard. So what happened so many states wanted to do some testing, word got out that New Jersey had a test, and I try to be a very collaborative type of guy. New Jersey's test, I would say, sure, but before you do that, we're going to require you to come to a seminar so you know what you're getting into. And that included uh, one or two counties in Florida, which you may have some familiarity with. That included actually a district, federal district court, <laughs> believe it or not. Wow. wow. I think another, another jurisdiction in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And several, some others in, inquired but didn't ever follow through. So when Bill Hewitt got the grant, the SGI grant, to do a nationwide study of access to courts for linguistic minorities, when he was at the National Center for State Courts, I wound up being on the advisory board of that project. And that project, as Bill worked on it for three years, resulted in the idea of the birth of a consortium where resources for test development and test administration would be shared. Mm -hmm. And so New Jersey was part of the original core of states that helped form the consortium in 19, wow, 95. Wow. So that, that has been a long time, but... Uh, to this day, I think this model, even uh, through the years and, and modifications, stands as the states sharing resources for testing and certification of interpreters across Correct. the nation, Correct. which is which is really amazing because if it was 1995, it's been, what, 20, 23 years since the yeah, inception started, of that idea. We started in 1987. And one of the wow. other developments that we, we came up with and contributed to the field was we started with Spanish, but not long after that, we added uh, Haitian Creole and Portuguese. And then before the construction was even formed, we also added uh, three varieties of Arabic, French, uh, Polish, Russian, Mandarin, um, I'm forgetting what they all were, but six other languages as well. So, so we, we were involved in develop, expanding that model into other languages before the consortium was formed. That's amazing. And uh, let me ask you, Robert Joe, and did you find a lot of resistance uh, because of misconceptions as to what an interpreter is versus bilingual? What do you think was your biggest challenge to sell this idea? <laughs> Where do I start? <laughs> uh, well, there's several different uh, uh, pieces of resistance. The first one is from the courts themselves. Any big bureaucracy is, is hard to change. People who are in a bureaucracy for a long time develop habits. Things become easy because doing things the habitual way. 
when you introduce something new, regardless of whether it's the courts or some other entity, there's always resistance to change per se. Uh, and that's just a general comment. A second comment is there was even resistance from groups that you would think would be your allies. I'll never forget testifying uh, before the state legislature on behalf of the AOC in support of the Court Interpreter Act. And uh, a, a senator from North Jersey asked me, I'm not let me see if I got this right. Uh, the judges, have the judges complained about this as an issue? I said, a, a few, but not very much. He said, how about the bar? Is there a groundswell of, of anxiety and complaints from the bar about the inadequacy of interpreting services? I said, not very much. He said, how about the community? Uh, is the Hispanic community in New Jersey rising up in arms to, uh, to clamor for change in court interpreting services? I said, not much, a little bit, but not a lot. So let me get this straight. The judges don't think there's a problem. The bar doesn't think there's a problem. And the Hispanics don't think that there's a problem. So the only people who think there's a problem is the administrative office of the courts. And all they want to do is, is cost the taxpayer more money. Wow. Wow. So that was a public. But at that same hearing, the Hispanic Bar Association took a position opposed to the Court Interpreter Act. No kidding. I didn't know that. Just bizarre. And so, what, what was their reasoning? Do you remember? Uh, I'd rather not go into that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just say I'll tell you off the record sometime. Okay. Well, well, I tell you what. It, it's it's really interesting because it seems to be a misconception all around that if there's not a a, a complaint that nothing bad is happening. I I know our friend Patricia Michelson always says that that's unheard of injustice because who's there to complain if people are not understanding what's going on? Correct. Absolutely. And then I think the last the last piece of resistance is just. Uh, I think, I know in the courts, nobody seemed to argue or resist in, in the criminal court. Everybody knew that there's constitutional rights for criminal defendants. Uh, and when you have a witness who needs to testify, you want to make sure you get a, uh, the accurate interpretation on the record. But the biggest resistance in the courts was in the civil courts. Well, oh. this is a, because the argument was, well, these people don't have the same constitutional rights as criminal defendants. And these are people who choose to go to court, and there's always a, mon there's a monetary award that, why should we pay for people who are making money off the legal process? Right, right. So that was a resistance, and uh, it took a long time for the concept of equal access to, per to permeate and overcome that. And I, I think that you just hit, hit the nail on the head when you said access, because I think there's a lot of uh, people that think that this is some kind of language right. You know, why do they have more rights because they don't speak the language? And I, I, I don't think that it's clear to many of us, many, many people uh, outside of what we do, that what we interpreters provide is access, not a privilege for not speaking or an advantage for not speaking the language. Right. And I think the flip side of that is just a widespread ignorance about language per se uh, and languages and what interpreting and translating entail because... You know, when I started, the perception was if you speak Spanish, therefore you're an interpreter or a translator. Right. And I, I know people who were uh, secretaries for judges who became staff interpreters because they were Hispanic. Right. Uh, and, and they didn't meet any professional standards. And, and, and the judges don't know. I mean, they, they weren't malicious. They were just ignorant.
Right. And, and do you think that there's a misconception also on the part of the bilingual people that they themselves think, oh, I'm bilingual, I can do this job? Well, I think that's part of what the Hispanic bars problem was. They might have been bilingual, but they didn't really understand what an interpreter does in court and what the technical skills are that are involved. And some of the worst resistance we've gotten has been from bilingual attorneys who are themselves Latinos. Right, right. And I, I, I remember a situation in the state that uh, a bilingual attorney said, well, I didn't pass the test, I, and I'm an attorney, so if I can't pass it, then nobody can. Well, we've had lots of people pass the test and thought they passed it the first time. Not just PhDs in Spanish, people have negotiated multi-million dollars contracts all over Latin America, and of course, the Hispanic attorney. Right, right. And, and it's interesting because the director of the program at that time told him, well, you know, I have a roster here. I have 196 people that have, in fact, passed the test. So this story about you know, if I don't pass it, nobody can. It's, it's, and again, I think you're right. It's not malicious. It's just lack of information. And right. that's why we want to uh, share. So what do you think? Uh, first of all, two things that I really am interested in asking you because you are really the expert in the field of uh, testing. You know that there's a lot of rumors out there about the test being very difficult or impossible to pass. In your opinion, and, and being that you have done this for a long time, is the test a, fair, and B, does it really test what it should in order to ascertain that a person is uh, possibly an interpreter that uh, could be working in courts? Well, after, I'm so glad you asked that question. I, I go to Rutgers University to speak to their TNI students every year, and I ask them when I start my presentation, says, what have you heard about the test? And they say, well, it's, it's hard, almost impossible to pass. And I said, well, they in your experience, when you and you're now in college and you've taken lots of tests, when you have done poorly on a test, what was usually the reason for that? And they said, uh, we didn't study or we weren't prepared. I said, exactly. Mm -hmm. I said, so to ask the question whether the test is hard or not is the wrong question. The question is whether it's fair and reliable and measures what it's supposed to measure. So I said, anyone who is properly prepared in, for, for court interpretation will think the test is insultingly easy. Anyone who doesn't is not adequately prepared for the test. So I, I, and I know that there's this widespread belief and perception that the test is impossible, it's unfair, it's out to get people. Uh, if there was a Mexican person rating the test, taken by a Puerto Rican person, it's not fair because they don't speak the same Spanish, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we have, we have been working since 19, since the federal test uh, was formed, uh, started in, two, in uh, what was that, 1980. 80. To, to make sure that any test that we administer uh, is fair and valid and measures what it intends to measure. And we've, we have done a lot of things to try to explore that. Uh, some people have done psychometric analyses, which is, the subfield of psychology that measures testing uh, uh, properties. Uh, I haven't done that myself, but I've had lots of anecdotal evidence from people. For example, a person who was doing training for interpreters. We, we in New Jersey used to give candidates who showed promise detailed statistical feedback about their strengths and weaknesses. And then that trainer would take those that statistical feedback and pinpoint what the people needed to work on 
and then they come back to take the test and they do much better. So the real issue is whether people are prepared to take the test. And the problem is there historically has been an inadequate supply of resources for training interpreters. And so that, that's one of the original debates that we had in the birth days of, in the early days of the consortium, and which is more important, training or testing? It's, it's two, two sides of the same issue. Uh, one without the other is inadequate. I always took, the, but I will confess, I always took the testing side of that question. Because if you don't have a minimum standard, then you don't, people don't know what they're having to strive for. Of course, of course. And uh, through the years that you have been involved and you are, and I, I would say that you're theoretically retired, but I think you're busier than you were before you were retired or about <laughs> as busy. Uh, so you, you go around, you talk to people. Where do you think... Uh, uh, interpretation is going because uh, I have to tell you and, and I, I'm going to invite you if you remember any funny stories but uh, I, I have to tell you that I had somebody tell me about 10 years ago uh, you better start looking for another job because in about two or three years machines will be doing your job what do you think about where are we going with this are we moving forward backwards or and are robots taking over well, I don't see any sign that robots are taking over, <laughs> but I've, I've learned to not underestimate the power of human creativity. Uh, so who knows what uh, all of all the folks who are working in machine translation are moving toward. Uh, I still don't trust it myself, certainly mm -hmm. not for a final product, but, uh, and I know there's lots of modules coming out for interpreting software and the like. The problem is the, the work of the court interpreter is so varied uh, and operates in so many environments at so many levels that I just don't see uh, human beings being replaced by machines anytime in the near future. Uh, down the road, who knows, but I don't see that happening in the near future. Yeah, I think I share, I share your, your, your feeling there. I think maybe one of these days, because I... I Oh, just like you, I don't. I tend to not underestimate because many, many, many years ago, when I was in engineering school, and we tried to develop a program for a chess uh, playing machine, it was so cumbersome because of the very weak uh, power and computing power that computers had 30 years ago. And today, as we know, and it's been a while now that Big Blue beat Kasparov on a chess. Um, match and I remember 30 years ago when I was studying computers I thought there's no way a computer will ever do this so obviously maybe one of these days but I don't think that it's going to be anytime soon so do you think people should continue to get prepared and 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 uh, study and uh, and strive to become court interpreters absolutely but I think the two challenges to the profession right now are first uh a nationwide struggle for the public sector to remain funded and functional. Mm -hmm. And I mean government in general and not just the courts, but the courts are affected dramatically. And for, for courts to e implement better programs for court interpreting or sustain the existing good programs is becoming an increasingly challenging uh, endeavor. And it's the, the writing on the wall is the tax base for the public sector is eroding, and that 
poses enormous obstacles, even for a well-intentioned court system that wants to do well when the resources just are not there. The second thing is, it, it just seems to me that there's a huge, very ugly resurgence of nativism in this country that is going to present an obstacle, another type of an obstacle for moving forward in this field. These are both independent of what court interpreting is, but they're at the heart, money and uh, xenophobia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, from within the profession, I think the challenge is, uh, you know, we've come a long way. Uh, it's nice to see uh, a section of ATA healthy and not see Magic doing fairly well. Uh, it, it pains me to see a lot of the uh, conversations that happen on the listserv, mm -hmm. people alleging things that they don't know anything about. And so I think one of the things that's a, a huge challenge for the field is the lack of uh, what I would call evidence-based information that helps people, helps guide people's attitudes and thinking. Uh, as you know, one of my goals as a manager has always been to do research and development because we just don't know a lot about the profession of court interpreting from a professional academic point of view. And for any profession to mature, it needs a research literature to back it up. Right. And to nudge it forward. Right. And I, and I really appreciate uh, you saying that. And uh, uh, I hope that in the future we had a, a second conversation about this subject, because I think that what you said is also so important. I hear around the country when I travel uh, in conferences for interpreters, all this misinformation and completely not evidence-based, as you said, of uh, people opining about the profession, what's needed, uh, what exams really measure, and, and what they can do for the profession or not. So we really need more people like you that can back it up with research and, and studies and not just saying, well, I was told that Chuchito told me that Billy told him that it's a bad test. Absolutely. Uh, So uh, thank you very much. I want to thank you very much, Robert Joe, uh, to, uh, to, for your uh, time and for participating with us. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure, as always, to talk to you. And I really want to know if you would be interested, because I think this, is, uh, this merits more conversations about this topic. Standing invitation. This, this is a lot of fun for me. You know where my heart is. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your, for your time, Robert Joe, and we hope to see you soon on one, one of these conferences when we happen to meet. Sounds good. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.